0: Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, a Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. This is another special edition of Fraud Eat Strategy in which we examine a major case, in 2006, Germany based Siemens was ranked 22nd on the global fortune 500 with revenues of $100 billion. It was a global leader and one of the world's most admired companies until November 16th, 2006, when the Munich police department raided Siemens's corporate offices and several subsidiaries based on whistleblower allegations of bribery and misuse of funds. This Munich police department investigation triggered a global corruption investigation, which revealed that Siemens had methodically violated U.S., German, and other global anti-bribery laws for decades. When the settlement of the case was announced in 2008, law enforcement didn't pull any punches. Matthew Friedrich, the acting chief of the Justice Department's criminal division, called corruption at Siemens systematic and widespread. Linda C. Thompson, the SEC's enforcement director, said it was egregious and brazen. And Joseph Persichini, the assistant director in charge of the FBI's Washington Field Office, which led the investigation, called it massive, willful, and carefully orchestrated. Yet what is equally remarkable is that a company that used corruption strategically and methodically to achieve its business objectives for decades remade itself in the wake of the corruption scandal to emerge as a model of corporate reform and business ethics. The admonishments from the DOJ, SEC, and the FBI were followed by statements that Siemens and its subsidiaries disclosed these violations after initiating an internal FCPA investigation of unprecedented scope, shared the results, cooperated extensively, took appropriate disciplinary actions against individuals, including senior management, and remedial action, including the complete restructuring of Siemens and the implementation of a sophisticated compliance program and organization. Joining me today are two experts on corruption investigations and anti-bribery and corruption compliance and remediation, Kara Brockmeyer and Peter Solmson. Kara is a white collar partner at Deboboy and Plimpton where her practice focuses on anti-corruption and SEC enforcement. She joined Debavoy in 2017 from the SEC, where she had spent 17 years in the enforcement division, most recently as the head of the SEC's FCPA unit. While there, she oversaw some of the largest cases the agency has brought to date. Our next guest, Peter Solmson, joined Siemens in the summer of 2007 as general counsel and a managing board member, the first American to serve on the Siemens board. At the same time, Siemens was in the early stages of the corruption scandal, which had commenced in Munich and quickly spread to other countries, endangering the company's survival. Activists investors were threatening to break up the company, and the potential penalties, especially debarment from government contracts, could be crippling. In May 2007, the company had replaced its CEO with the first outsider in its history, Peter Loscher, who was in line to be the next CEO of Merck. When he left to join Siemens, Losher's first priority was cleaning up the corruption scandal, and he asked Peter to leave General Electric, where Solmson was a corporate vice president and general counsel of GE's healthcare business to lead that effort. As the new general counsel at Siemens, Peter faced the unusual challenge of rebuilding a compliance function that the bribery scandal had exposed as not only weak, but sometimes corrupt. Peter and Losher undertook an intense effort to resolve outstanding cases change the culture, redesign compliance processes and make adherence to law and ethics a critical part of performance appraisals. The corruption scandal was concluded in December 2008, barely 18 months after the cleanup began, in a simultaneous settlement with the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office, the U.S. Department of Justice and the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. In addition to discussing the Siemens case today, We'll also discuss some important work that Peter and Kara are involved with regarding the growing international use of settlements to resolve anti-corruption cases. Peter is chairman of the International Bar Association Subcommittee on Non-Trial Resolutions of Foreign Bribery Cases, where Kara is vice chair. And at the end of this episode, we'll discuss their work with Project Rollout and how to become involved. Welcome, Kara and Peter, and thank you for joining me today. Delighted to be here.
1: Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, Peter, Siemens and GE are two of the most diverse and successful companies in the world and have been competitors and rivals for over 100 years. You worked at GE for nine years before joining Siemens, while the corruption investigation was in full swing to take on the role of general counsel and join the management board, a role that you played for over six years, which I imagine were six pretty grueling years. I have to assume that you didn't take this on lightly. Did you have any conditions on the way in, in terms of what the company was willing to do to rid itself of its historical endemic corruption? Well, there were
2: the most important thing was the assurance from Peter Larcher that he wanted me to do, or he wanted us to do whatever was necessary to clean the place up. And I didn't need much more than that. I knew Peter pretty well. And of course, I knew Siemens very well. I competed against him for years. And what we saw from the GE side was that Siemens had terrific technology, terrific global reach, terrific customer loyalty, and it really didn't need to pay bribes. So it didn't look to me to be a terribly hard job to get the company to do what we were already doing
0: at General Electric. I knew it could be done. You have a gift for understatement. So Kara, perhaps the biggest failure on Siemens' part was the failure to act. Siemens' leadership, the internal audit, Outside auditors, compliance, and outside counsel received numerous reports of government investigations in multiple jurisdictions. There were reports of slush funds and off-books accounts, misleading information from officers and employees, including regional compliance officers. And there were numerous instances in which the company didn't take appropriate actions to investigate and discipline responsible parties. The world really had never seen a corruption case like this before. So much so that Siemens fired its entire C-suite and turned over its management and executive boards. I remember being pretty blown away by that fact alone, since it was really unheard of at the time. It also set the tone for the compliance remediation and cultural overhaul that followed. How important is it to hold executives and board members accountable when a major scandal like this first comes to light, Kara?
1: Scott, I think Siemens actually showed the way forward when you're faced with a situation like they were where the conduct went to the top and it was so widespread. I think that is what the government expects to see. They want to see the company address the wrongdoers, however high up in the organization they are. And I think that's one of the things that allowed Siemens to get credibility with the government that allowed them to get the investigation done so quickly that they could, you know, move on from there and turn over a new leaf.
0: Thanks, Kara. So Peter, when you stepped in, Germany was less than 10 years removed from a time when bribery was not only legal, it was tax deductible. What are some of the most important steps taken at Siemens when you stepped in to halt bribery and begin to build a sustainable, ethical culture?
2: Well, I'd say there are two things that were critically important and effective. The first is what's always called tone from the top and clarity from leadership that this was a priority and there would be no exceptions and there would be no grace periods that we were going to do this and we we're going to do this right. And, but I think that the secret to our success was our own employees. We had to give our own employees support. The fact of the matter is, and the secret sauce is that people don't want to pay products. And if you enable them to say no to a solicitation, it works. Two things we could build on. One was the old Siemens culture. I mean, Werner von Siemens, the founder of the company, faced bribery in the 1860s. And he wrote about it in his memoirs and he wouldn't pay bribes. And so we really had a good culture that we could advert to. And the second was, we found that employees in the countries where bribery is a problem know it's a huge problem for their country and they want to be part of the solution. So it wasn't hard to motivate employees in challenged countries if you gave them good leadership. So I would say with it was those two things, tone, clarity, leadership on the one hand, and then enabling people to do what they want to do anyway, which is the right thing. I do want to tell you one story, actually, a little anecdote. Later, after we'd settled, I was in a South American country I probably shouldn't name because I have also had management responsibility for North and South America. And the CEO of that country said, the former CFO of this region would like to see you. I really didn't have time to see the former guy and I wasn't really interested in hearing about how he'd meant to do the right thing. But I agreed to see him I, after some urging. The guy came to see me, he had $38 million sitting in his checking account that he wanted to return to the company. He'd been sitting on this money during the whole cleanup. We didn't know where he got this money. I mean, he could have just kept it, but he felt you know, that he'd been sort of the trustee for the slush funds and he was sitting in his checking account and he wanted to give it back. It's a pretty amazing little factoid People basically want to do the right thing.
0: If you give them the capability of doing that, they'll do it. So Kara, in Siemens' guilty plea, the date range detailing the bribery activity at Siemens as having taken place from March 12th, 2001 to September 30th, 2007, during which the company made at least 4,283 bribe payments, totaling $1.4 billion. That's the date that Siemens first listed its American depository receipts on the New York Stock Exchange. What is it about Siemens listing that's so important to this case?
1: There are, as regular listeners of your podcast practitioners in the FCPA space, know there's three basic ways that the US can get jurisdiction over bribes that are paid overseas. The first and the easiest way is that if you are a public company like Siemens was, where you list on a stock exchange in the U.S. or otherwise have to make those periodic filings, those quarterly and annual reports with the SEC, then you're an issuer. And that means that the SEC and the Department of Justice both have jurisdiction over your conduct anywhere, anywhere in the world. But that's not the only way that the U.S. government can address conduct that occurs outside the U.S. Two other ways that the, the companies can fall afoul of the FCPA. But in cases where it's a foreign company that is listing in the U.S., you'll see both the SEC and the DOJ often both taking action.
0: Thanks, Kara. So the Siemens case actually caused somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction on the part of some German companies where there was this maybe wrong-headed view that if you don't list in the U.S., that you may not be subject to U.S. enforcement. And that seemed to convey a lack of understanding of the FCPA. It's not just issuers that are subject to the jurisdiction of the FCPA.
1: You know, there's a lot of reasons why companies choose to leave the U.S. markets. FCPA enforcement should really not be one of them, because in addition to U.S. issuers, any company that has a subsidiary or does business in the U.S., that US subsidiary is subject to the FCPA as a, what's called the domestic concern, meaning it's subject to the FCPA regardless of where its conduct occurs. And then there's a final way that the US enforcement authorities can reach conduct, which is they can reach the conduct of foreign nationals if the individual or the entity. Takes action in the U.S. So, this is often the way that the U.S. will address the conduct of intermediaries. So, agents that may not be U.S. nationals, but will come to the U.S. to meet with someone. And so, I think it's important for companies to recognize that Alstom, for example, was really not an issuer for almost the entire time period of its misconduct. And yet, the uh, U.S. was able to address it. Airbus is not a U.S. issuer. They don't list on the U.S. markets. And yet, the Department of Justice was able to participate in that settlement. And we've seen other very large cases, including German companies, where they may not be a U.S. issuer, so you may not see the fcc there, but the Department of Justice finds a way to say that that conduct also violates the FCPA.
0: Thanks, Kara. So, Peter, when you joined Siemens, there were many improper practices going on that had really been institutionalized over many years use of cash desks, slush funds, there was extensive use of third-party intermediaries to pay bribes, bulk movement of cash across international borders, sham consulting agreements and government customers who were accustomed to being bribed in order to award Siemens business. These were all issues with which you had to contend simultaneously. How did the company put a stop to all those things across multiple business lines, geographies, and a workforce numbering over 380,000 people?
2: Well, we had to slam on a lot of brakes at the same time. The first thing, as you are suggesting, we had to look at all of the consulting and intermediary distribution contracts that the company was engaged in. It was a massive effort. And if we couldn't find a legitimate reason, a clearly legitimate reason for any of these arrangements... A lot of them were consulting groups, just terminated. And we had to be ready for the lawsuits that came. The lawsuits from terminated representatives of one sort or another, agents, consultants, and from our own employees. we found people that uh, we knew we were involved, we fired them and you know they'd sue us for wrongful termination. Sometimes win. There were there were German courts that would say, Well, this guy was sort of following orders and didn't have a choice. A couple of cases like that. So we just had to be resolute, clear, and cut all this stuff away. We had to invest in Better controllership. You know, our finance and audit teams weren't what they should have been, and they certainly didn't have the right technology. A lot of digitization went on, Uh, and of course, compliance people and processes. And I don't mean compliance people necessarily as the detectives, although we needed some of them, but also to give support. You know, how do you do this right? If you really do need to use a distributor, if you really do need to use a consultant, how do how do you do that right? And that that took an investment in time and people, but uh, we had to do an awful lot very quickly.
0: So it was the Siemens case that really first put third parties such as sales agents and customs brokers, lawyers and accountants under the microscope. And around the same time, the term intermediary came into use to distinguish this subcategory of third parties. Siemens paid nearly a a billion of the total of 1.4 billion bribe payments through intermediaries. What did the Siemens case teach us? about the risk of intermediaries and what are some of the leading industry practices that Siemens and other companies have adopted since?
1: This is an interesting issue, right? Because the problem of intermediaries hasn't gone away, despite the fact that you know we're now 15 years on from where we were with Siemens. And still today, about 85 to 90% of the anti-corruption cases that the US government brings involve third parties or intermediaries of one kind or another. One of the things that I think in the wake of Siemens was a significant change in the way that the government looked at this issue was that they started asking companies, this is a significant risk. Third parties present a significant risk. It's actually written right into the FCPA that you're liable for the acts of third parties if you know or have reason, are willfully blind to the likelihood that they're going to be paying bribes. So the government started asking companies, and I think you know Siemens during the monitorship kind of led the way with. What are you doing to assess the risk that your third parties present? Are you doing due diligence? And I think back then, there was not a lot of companies doing what we would now call sort of regular course due diligence on their third parties. The government started asking things like, do you have contracts with the third parties? Are you checking to make sure that there's deliverables and that you're getting value for the money and the deliverables are actually coming through? Do you have anti-corruption clauses in your contracts? Have you terminated third parties where you identify an issue. And so it has really led, I think, to a sea change in the way that companies have to deal with these issues. And it's also, I think, changed the behavior of a lot of companies who looked at the question of, did they really need all of these sales agents and third parties? Could they do it themselves to have better control over what was happening as these intermediaries went out and acted on their behalf?
2: I'll just add to that, you know, the surprising outcome for a lot of companies, certainly both at GE and Siemens, when we would clean up distribution channels, uh, we would find that we made more money. I mean, agents and distributors are expensive. And a lot of our businesses, both at GE and Siemens found that, you know, the sort of regular culling of distribution or agencies, you made more money if you went direct. Now, one of the other things that was amusing about distributors in some parts of the world is, and they would tell you flat out, if you want me to do this clean, I can do this. If I'm allowed to do what, you know, other people do, I can do that. It wasn't always true, but you know, they were pretty clear-eyed and would follow instructions. You said, you can't pay bribes. Okay. Maybe I, I won't get the volumes you're expecting, which also turned out not to be true, but those conversations
1: were pretty direct. Let me just add to that kind of a funny story, not actually in connection with the Siemens investigation, but a different investigation that I was heading when I was at the SEC. We actually got a hold of one of the intermediaries because he had a residence in the U.S. And he came in and talked to us and said, all right, he'll cooperate with us. And one of the things that he told us was that he did pay bribes on behalf of the company, but he never told the officials how much money the company was paying him. So he was driving a Vols, had a very, very nice watch, had, you know, vacation homes. And the way that he did it was by telling the company, his client, I need to pay X. And by telling the government official, well, this is all I can give you. And the Delta, which was very, very large, according to him, was money that he got to keep for himself.
0: I think there was a lot of that in the Siemens case, too. No honor among thieves. So while the bribery of foreign officials that was going on at the time at Siemens, was fairly widely known. The company, nevertheless, made use of code words for bribe payment. Feel free to correct my German pronunciation that's about to come forth. Nutzliche Aufwendungen. Nutzliche Aufwendungen. Yeah, you're close. Yes, yes. It sounded a lot better when you said it. Which translates into useful expenditures. And then sometimes they use the term bonus payments. When recording bribe payments in Siemens accounting system to conceal them, there must have been hundreds of different accounting ledgers across the many Siemens businesses and country operations. How did the company engage with finance personnel to educate, you know, and alert them to the possibility that these code words were being used to mischaracterize what were bribe payments as though they were legitimate business expenses? Well, it was a pretty sophisticated operation a friend of mine who was in the Siemens Management
2: Training Program in the late 60s, I guess in the early 60s, took his training courses, ironically, in, in a classroom that was two floors below where my office was 40 or 50 years later. And he told me that as a young, very young man, he, he had not graduated from college yet, but it was Siemens training program. They were told, you know, there will come a time when there's some com- payments you may need to make, which will make you uncomfortable. And don't worry, we've got an office that handles that. Now, in the same program, Peter von Siemens, then the head of Siemens, a member of the family, would give them a lecture on ethics, business ethics, and I never understood how they combined those two things. But My friend later went on to the United States and didn't stay at Siemens, but it, we went way, way, way back. That This was acknowledged to be a problem and there was a sophisticated operation to uh, to handle it. it. grew over the years. I mean, bribery has become more and more sophisticated. It's, it's less and less accepted around the world. I mean, every country The people in almost all countries loathe bribery, so it's become, uh, it has to be hidden, camouflaged, and so the methods of both paying and and camouflaging the payments has become more sophisticated. At the time, Siemens uh, adapted to the sort of market challenges.
0: Well, thanks, Peter. So in the years preceding the investigation, there were a rash of bribery incidents and law enforcement intervention going on in different corners of the company. Involving allegations of bribery and unusual payment patterns in places like Nigeria, Italy, Greece, Liechtenstein, and Dubai, among other places. Legal and compliance were notified. Compliance personnel made, you know, what were then considered to be appropriate recommendations, as did outside counsel. And in many of these instances, the recommendations weren't followed and the disciplinary actions that were taken hardly seemed punitive. How should a global company ensure that law enforcement interaction, hotline tips, audit findings, and other sources of red flags are aggregated, investigated, and disciplinary actions are taken in a consistent and even handed manner?
1: Scott, I think this is a real challenge for big multinational companies because the amount of information that's coming in is immense and the government expectations for what they want companies to do in this area basically exploded overnight. So one of the things that we've seen our clients have success with is making sure that you have a triage system. And so you're funneling all types of complaints into a single system so that you have, whether you call it a compliance committee or it goes to a a group of people that are seeing all of these so that they can be assured that they're applying the same rigor of the internal investigation and the remedial steps that you need to make consistently across the board. And also, and this is, I think, probably one of the most critical pieces, they're also documenting what happened so that two, three, four years from now, when the government comes in and second guesses what you did, you have the documentation to show that you recognized a red flag, you handled it appropriately by investigating it, remediating what you found, and that you can show them, you know, the proof that that has occurred. But this is an area where I think for all companies, they're really focused on what type of new technology can help them address these issues.
2: Yeah, if I can jump in for a second. I think one of the important things also is, I mean, how quickly you, re- you react. I mean, when we had things coming in, whether it was a GE or a Siemens, you know, whether was an audit finding or a whistleblower or something, you know, we knew the clock was running and we had to move quickly to figure out how serious this was. And then and this gets into the topic Karen and I are going to talk about later, but we got pretty good at, if we identified something as being a problem, walking it into the appropriate prosecutors and telling them, look what we found, where, you know, we're not sure the dimensions of it, we're not sure about all the facts, but we think this is a solid lead for a serious problem. And that would earn us a lot of goodwill as we were trying to wrap the case up later on. But we'll get to that
0: later. Well, thanks. So in the foregoing example of red flags that were not properly addressed, how were you able to explain to the government that there was, uh, in effect, a, a new sheriff in town and that you had a rigorous process in place to triage and investigate these red flags as they came in? Well, the first people we had to convince were Kara and her colleagues at the
2: SEC and her friends over at the Department of Justice and the German prosecutors, and we had to earn our way back into good favor with our primary government contacts. It was different country by country. In fact, in some countries, the country was the problem. Yes, they had enforcement, but I'll tell you one country, well, name them. I had to give a $100 million check to Mrs. Kirchner in Argentina, and the irony of that was lost on no one. It really depended on the country, how serious they were about enforcement and it was the same story over and over again. we could show them what we'd done in terms of beefing up our compliance capabilities and what we've done in terms of making changes in our management, what we've done in terms of processes so that we can assure ourselves that our business was as clean as we could get it. And depending on how receptive they were, I mean, maybe we should ask Kara this, what worked when we were talking to the SEC? I, I think we kept coming back and showing tangibly the things we've done.
1: Let me add to that. I think one thing that is you know, important, I think the government recognizes that if you're doing business in certain areas of the world, you're going to have these problems. And one of the things that they want to see, as Peter said, is that the company has a good process in place to address it, recognize it quickly. And then if you're under investigation or you're finishing out your, you know, deferred prosecution period, that you're transparent and upfront with the government about what you're finding, where you're looking and what the end result of that is going to be.
2: Uh, one last piece from our side, from the consumer side, less than two years after the deal was, you know, after we got court approval and, and we finished our transactions or settlement in the United States, we caught a couple of guys in Kuwait trying to bribe the industry, energy. And the first thing we did was go running to the SEC and the Department of Justice, you know, look, we caught it. We found it. We stopped it. You know, we were treated fairly and I think got a lot of benefit out of promptly reporting what we found. And we had a process to catch stuff
0: when it went wrong. Yeah, it's a great way to kind of stress test how, you know, your new processes are working or not working is to be able to demonstrate that not only does it work, but here's the output. Uh, Yeah, it's a great thing to be able to do, especially early on in the new iteration of Siemens. So there were a number of firsts in the Siemens investigation. The day of the guilty plea, the U.S. government confirmed Siemens as a responsible contractor, meaning that their guilty plea did not result in their debarment from U.S. government contracts, which has struck, I think, a lot of people as pretty unusual. Kara, is that sort of confirmation a a common part of a plea negotiation?
1: I wouldn't necessarily say that it's common. I would say that that is the thing that people want, right? They want closure. They want to know what when they settle, if they're going to settle what all the collateral consequences are. So for any company like Siemens, that does a lot of government work, getting that, working through those issues with the various departments in the U.S. government or the German government or wherever you have this issue ahead of time, basically on the same track that you're trying to resolve the issue with the SEC and DOJ is important because you can't come to them after the settlement and then want them to make a determination When I was in government, we saw this with all different types of entities. It could be everything from the Army or the Navy, if they were government contractors, to the EPA in one case. For many companies that do a lot of big construction work around the world, it'll be the World Bank and the various multinational development banks that have their own process now. I think it's gotten harder to get that because all of the agencies have gotten a little bit more sophisticated about it. And something else that we should probably mention now is that back at the time, it seems it was unusual because it was a really the first sort of global settlement where you had the U.S. and the Munich prosecutors doing it at the same time. So you had a global settlement that you were announcing. That's now become much more sort of par for the course. We've seen it with Brazil, with the U.K., with France, the Nordic countries through the Bekistan telecom cases. That complicates settlement discussions as well for companies. I mean, in some ways, when you're trying to settle one of these, it can be playing like four level multidimensional chess, trying to get all the pieces in place so that you can reach that resolution. And now every once in a while, you'll have somebody come out of nowhere like the CFTC last year saying that they're going to be looking at it from the perspective of their laws. For companies that probably thought, well, I only have to worry about DOJ, not a regulator because I'm a commodities firm and not regulated by the SEC. So... I think it's become more challenging over time. Peter, I'd be interested in your views as well. I think it's become more challenging to try to get to resolution.
2: Well, I'd, I'd like that is another plug, actually, Kara, for our project, which is one of the things that Kara and I are working on is trying to get international guidelines. And because the countries move at different speeds, of different laws, have got different attitudes, and trying to channel them so that they can replicate what we did at SEMA, where we're just sort of making it up as we went along. It's now, as Kara says, become a common practice to have global settlements, and we're working on guidance for the countries that have been or may in the future engage in these kinds of discussions, and bringing in the government procurement agencies, whoever they may be, early as part of that process is something which isn't necessarily obvious, but
0: it's terribly important for companies
2: that, that have a lot of government contracts business,
0: as we did. So, Peter, you you've spoken... And written on your experience driving compliance reform at Siemens and the fact that the overwhelming majority of employees, they don't want to be criminals. And recognizing that fact, you implemented an amnesty program within Siemens. How did that work and and what was its impact? I'm glad you raised it. It was actually the first thing I did when I walked in the door, and I was told by our legal
2: department that under German law it was probably impossible to do. We we solved that problem pretty quickly. And it was key to resolving the case. I mean, Kara's firm, Double Voice, was leading the investigation. They told me before the amnesty, everybody lied. You know, they didn't know anything, they didn't see anything, never heard of it. But after the amnesty, when we give them a second chance, then all of a sudden they remembered bank accounts and customers and brokers. And, you know, we had eventually, I think, about 130 people, not all at once, but over time, during the amnesty period, about 130 people came in and told us what they knew. And... It was a very moving thing. They felt sort of purged of their sin, know, they got another chance. They could start. They could do what they wanted to do anyway. Most of them had really suffered being part of the bribery system. Very happy that it was over. It was interesting. I got a call one afternoon from the Munich prosecutor saying that she had a person sitting in her office who was already a cooperating witness with the prosecutors. I mean, subject to criminal prosecution himself, and he was more afraid of us. You know, she wanted us to grant him the amnesty so he wouldn't lose his job. If you came in and spoke to us, which was what we were willing to do, it was the key to wrapping the things up quickly because we gave people a chance to start over. And, and that was critical and, and very successful for everything we did.
1: I would just add, I think from the U.S. government perspective, what it did was sort of show the way that the U.S. could have an impact on making companies address corruption issues. But get the credibility, like Peter was saying, for the company to actually decide that they need to make the change. And we've seen that now with other monitors. So, with French companies having a French monitor, for the US government, they get the best of both worlds because they get someone that is respected in that country that understands the cultural aspect and the legal system in that country. And they're typically supported by a US firm that specializes in this area. So, the US firm can sort of translate for the monitor. These are the things that need to be done in order to satisfy the U.S. government. And so if you do it right, you can get the best of both worlds.
0: This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy, in which we'll resume our conversation with Kara Brockmeyer and Peter Solmson. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic or guest, you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at strategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.